0: Okay, well, as always, we're going to start by looking at the Wellspring Purpose and Discipline. So look at the back of your notebook. The Wellspring Purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God. So that they live out the gospel. thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And by now, you know that this is what we are after in Wellspring. This is it. This is what we talk about every single week. This is what all the lessons point to. It's what our assignments point back to. And I hope in the discussion groups, it's been a time where we all are helping one another understand this and live this out more, make this part of our thinking and and how we live. And in much of that, we focus... Um, oftentimes on our responsibility to shepherd our heart and our need to shepherd our heart and what it is that we shepherd our hearts with, with God's Word. And that's all true. That's good. Um, but if that's where we leave it, it can really begin to feel like a burden. Um, if that's all that we remember. So if you look at the purpose again, right there in the middle of it, you see a phrase that says, Toward Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to remind all of us why Jesus makes all the difference between this being a burden and this being a joyful, lifelong pursuit of knowing God better, and being used by him to show what the gospel can accomplish in the life of a sinner who believes. So turn to Isaiah 53 with me. I just want us to soak for a few minutes in some verses. This is where the Lord was telling the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah, who we now know as Jesus. So Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 2, and it's talking about Messiah. It says, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, And acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Remembering that this is the Savior we're pursuing, with whom we're meeting, to whom we're submitting, whom we're worshiping and adoring, is what keeps us from wrongly thinking that this is a burden. So that's why we start with Discipline 1. Discipline 1 says she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. And we do this not because finishing a reading plan or having a quiet time every day is just the way we do it at Grace Bible Church. (laughs) Okay, that's not it. That is not it at all. It's because this is our God. This suffering servant we just read about in Isaiah. This is our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are weak. Where else do we have to go? How wearying to limp along in our efforts to read the word if we don't keep the sweetness of our Savior before us. He is the one that we find in the word. He died so that we can draw near and be changed and be women who grow in godliness and obedience because we know him. And then that this is discipline two. We can be women who minister to those in our household with our heart for God and the gospel. So discipline two is our first priority for displaying the work that the gospel does in us. And so our home is where that effect, that transforming effect, needs to be felt first, but it can also be the hardest place, right? But that can be a good thing, because that keeps us from relying on ourselves. Often home home relationships and family relationships are where we can best see how much difference it makes when we are remembering the gospel or not, See, we want to be more concerned with others' sin, don't we, than our own? (coughs) Until we look to the cross and remember what Christ had to bear for our sin. And remember that he rose and set us free from our sin, including our sinful, judgmental, self-centered responses that we might be prone to have towards others. And on the positive side, our discipline to relationships with our home and family are typically where we have the best opportunities for long-term relationships and ongoing influence for the gospel. And what we say, how we live, how we repent, how we deal with our own sin. The people we live with have the best chance to see if what we profess is authentic. Do we really love Christ? If we do, it will show. Even if we struggle mightily with sin, a believer must refuse to be content to let sin build barriers in relationships. And so we seek forgiveness, and we labor for restoration. That will display Christ's work in your life. And so that makes the home the perfect training ground for Discipline 3, for ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And Discipline 3 is what we're just jumping into with both feet today. That's what we get to spend our time on today. So whether we're talking about serving in the nursery, or cleaning the bathrooms, or taking a meal to somebody, or being the Apostle Paul... It all needs to flow out of the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. So go ahead and take out the outline you received today and open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now you'll notice on your outline, we're going to obviously spend a lot of time on each of these points on the outline, but something that was really helpful for me going through 1 Thessalonians 1 and then continuing next time with 1 Thessalonians 2 um, is this year I'm seeing that these are really practical ministry statements, ministry tools. So the big picture, you can see the main points. You've got blanks there. I'm going to go ahead and um, take away all the suspense and drama and tell you what the (laughs) blanks are just so you maybe can get... uh, a big picture for what we're talking about here. The first one is that ministry has only one message and it's the gospel. And so that can be really helpful as I'm ministering in my home or in my small group or any relationship I have. Is the gospel present? Am I putting out gospel truth there with the people who I know who are believers who are not believers? And then number two is that ministry requires an uncommon messenger. And what we're going to look at there is really what it is that the gospel minister, the servant of the gospel, relies on. Do we rely on ourselves or do we rely on power from God and the Holy Spirit and conviction that the gospel and God's word is sufficient for whatever ministry it is that he gives us to do? The third point, ministry, involves imitation. And that really speaks to the way that the gospel minister lives and the relationship that the gospel minister has with those that he's serving, she's serving. Number four is that ministry must produce not only exemplary lives but effective lives. And that just is another place as we are interacting with people, ministering to people. Um, We have that opportunity to spur others on to be fruitful in their spheres of influence because they have spheres of influence that go far beyond our sphere of influence and so the idea is that we want to see ministry multiply and then finally ministry labors for nothing less than repentance and that really brings it back first to discipline one for myself am I living a life that the gospel is bearing fruit and where I'm turning from sin to follow Christ more and more and so then is that also what I'm laboring for in the lives of the people where I have opportunity to minister whether it's someone with whom I'm sharing the gospel who's not a believer, or a believer who I'm encouraging to help grow. So I hope that kind of just stepping back and looking at those five ministry statements as as tools for helping us to grow in our ministry and be more fruitful in our ministry will um, just help us be more practical as we step back and break it all down verse by verse. So for a little bit of background for uh, the book of Thessalonians, Paul was with the Thessalonian church. He was in Thessalonica for at most three months, and at a minimum of three weeks. In Acts 17, it mentions that he was with them for three Sabbaths. So that could literally mean that he was with them for just three weeks. But uh, it's more likely that he was with them a little longer. And probably it mentions three Sabbaths because of the time that he was with them, he was reasoning with them for three of those Sabbaths. Um, so keep that in mind. A church existed in Thessalonica because a man was preaching the gospel for less than three months. That's pretty amazing. And now he's writing to this little baby church. So we're going to read the whole chapter, 1 Thessalonians 1, and then we'll focus in on verses 5 through 10. So read along as I read the passage. Follow along. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you For your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So now that we've got the whole chapter in front of us, we're going to focus in on verses 5-10. through We'll start with number one. Ministry has only one message, and it's the gospel. So, if we're going to talk about ministry, that's discipline three, it's important to understand what the message is of biblical ministry. What message did Paul bring when he was ministering? Well, Paul said in verse 5 For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The gospel was the message of Paul's ministry. Now if we're going to say that ministry has only one message and it's the gospel, we need to make sure that we understand how Paul ministered with the gospel. So we're going to take a look at the book of Romans. Go ahead and turn it over to Romans 1 so we can better understand the way that Paul viewed gospel ministry. Now this might be review, but I think it will be helpful to be reminded of how broadly... Paul made use of the gospel. Now I want to begin by showing you uh, that Paul is writing to Christians. If you'll look at Romans 1 verses 11 and 12, it says, "For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established that is that I may that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. He said that he wanted to be encouraged by their faith in Jesus Christ. It's clear in Paul's mind that he is writing to Christians. And then verse 15 tells us what it was that he wanted to preach to them. He says, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul wanted to preach the gospel to believers. Now this may not be a new idea to you at this point in Wellspring, but for many of us, We have spent years thinking that the gospel is primarily how a person got saved or gets saved. So you preach it to unbelievers. But that's a limited view of the gospel, that's an incomplete view of gospel ministry. That's not how Paul saw the gospel, it's not how he used the gospel. It is true, we do preach the gospel to unbelievers with the hope that they will believe. But that's not the only use. Of the gospel. See, the gospel still must be preached to those who are already in the faith. So go ahead and uh, keep reading with me in verse 16. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, But the righteous man shall live by faith. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God for those who believe. There is not a day of our Christian life that we can claim any other righteousness. We need the gospel daily because it drives us back to Christ and his death and his resurrection. Where believers look in faith and believe that Christ's righteousness is accounted to us. On the basis of Christ's righteousness we stand before God, holy and blameless. Because of Christ's righteousness we battle sin. Because of Christ's righteousness we die to our sin, ourselves daily, that Christ might live in us. That is what is in view when Paul talks about preaching the gospel. believers, And so that's his goal, to preach the gospel to those who believe in Rome. And that's what we find in the first chapter of Romans. Now go ahead and turn to Romans 16. This is the end of his letter. And he begins this benediction by greeting Christians who are in the churches. Phoebe, who is a servant of the church. Priscilla and Aquila, who are his fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Mary, who had worked hard for them. He mentions his fellow prisoners in the faith. And he goes on listing many by name. He's talking about Christians in the church. And now in verse 25, he writes, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. Paul wanted to see these Christians established in the gospel. Paul started off his letter with saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to preach the gospel to you who believe. And then here, when he's closing this letter, he says, I want you to be established and strengthened according to my gospel. In the book of Romans, he started with the gospel, and he finished with the gospel. And so what do you think is in between? What's the guy talk about who starts and finishes with the the gospel? It's the gospel. That's right. He unfolds the gospel. Romans is full of rich gospel theology. Everything relates to the gospel. It's necessary to bring about faith. It nourishes faith. It matures faith. It exposes sin and provides freedom from sin's penalty, its power, and eventually its presence. It's what transforms our thinking, and it's the foundation and fabric of every good thing we have to offer one another as we minister to one another in the body of Christ. That's why Paul put these gospel bookends on the book of Romans, and then fills the space in between by unfolding the gospel and its implications for the believer and for the body of Christ. So with that in mind, go ahead and turn back to 1 Thessalonians. Paul is emphasizing that the gospel did come to the Thessalonians. He's making it stand out. The dominant thought, as he reflects back on his ministry with them, is that the gospel engaged them. It's all over his letter to them. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. He says, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. He says, we didn't let opposition keep us from speaking the gospel to you. And then in verse 4, he says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. That's what we talked about with you. And then in verse 8, he says, Having so fond of an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives. Verse 9, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He loved them so much that he gave them the gospel. The dominant theme, as he thinks back on his time with them, is that it was all about the gospel. And what we have to remember as we step into one another's lives in our church and beyond our church is that that must be our dominant theme. When we talk about Discipline 3, we're talking about ministry concerning the gospel with one another. We're bringing the gospel into everything. We want to help one another understand the gospel better and better so that it can have its full transforming effect in every area of our lives and all the while we're growing in our knowledge and our closeness to Jesus now wouldn't it be sad if we gave the impression that the gospel was only that which saved us back a long time ago somewhere back there I know I believed it one time I used to know what it was See, the gospel has everything to do with growing in Christ. Ministry is all about the gospel. Now, if that's true, what must we know? We need to know the gospel, right? What do we mean when we say the gospel? On one hand, it can be as succinct as "God saves sinners." 1 Corinthians 15:3 and 4 sums it up this way: "For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures." and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's what Paul delivered to the Corinthians. On the other hand, the more time we spend in the word, the better able we are to see that all of scripture points in one way or another to Jesus Christ and his work of redemption. And so to give you some tools to help all of us better understand and communicate the gospel, you received a handout this morning of gospel resources. The first thing on there is a, trans, a partial transcript of a gospel summary that Smedley gave in a sermon back in August of 2010 on preaching the gospel to yourself. Uh, one is from Mark Devers' book, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism, and, where he gives the gospel in a minute. And then there's also a link uh, to an online gospel presentation entitled Two Ways to Live. And these are just compiled to be helpful to you. Hopefully, a resource. Um, there's certainly other helpful resources available, and you may already have um, have some of your own with gospel or Bible references attached, and, and that's that's great. If you don't need this, that's fine. But so even though it was in your last homework, the homework you'll get back today, and I will have to say that I was so encouraged and blessed by the homeworks I read and how. Um, you articulate the gospel. It's just really encouraging. Um, but we're still going to go back and take another look at it this week. This week in our homework and refine it if we need to. Um, and, because we just can't review the gospel too much. We need it fresh. Um, a few things you'll want to look back and just make sure that you've included is: Do you have something that, about the truth of God and His character? Do you have something about the truth about sin? What it is, its effect, its consequences. Do you have the truth about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done, and the result, the effect, the benefits for those who repent and believe this good news? Forgiveness and newness of life in Christ. See, as we all continue to grow in our understanding of the gospel's power and purpose, we will be more willing to talk about it both with the unbelievers and with those who believe. The gospel is not just information that we need to know. It's about knowing Christ. So it needs to saturate us, because it tells us about our Savior. So that is what belongs at the center of our relationships, just as it was for Paul. We need to learn to come into our relationships thinking, okay, you're my sister in Christ, or you're my brother in Christ. And I want to encourage you with the gospel. And I want you to encourage me with the gospel. Sometimes that's not exactly our heart when we go to somebody and we're struggling, is it? Hey, just preach the gospel to me. Tell me all about my sin here. But when we are struggling, what we need more than anything else is to remind each other of the great truths of the gospel and the power of the gospel. See, humbly going to the gospel together will give us eyes to see God's grace and to be transformed by God's grace in our circumstances. That's what it means to be ministry-minded with each other. And that takes some heart shepherding, doesn't it? It takes practice. You know, our habit when we're struggling may not to be to look to the gospel. We might feel stuck. We might kind of have a habit of wallowing in our struggle, of in feeling guilty or hurt or indignant. And so we need to walk carefully and humbly with one another as we learn to move the gospel into center stage. We never quit being compassionate and sympathetic, concerned, mourning with those who mourn, and in the midst of loving one another, we bring the gospel to one another. Because that is where our hope is. It's where we're drawn back to the lover of our souls. So ministry has only one message, and it's the gospel. So point number two is that ministry requires an uncommon messenger. As important as the gospel message is, In 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2, what we're looking at today and next time, Paul's leading concern is actually not the gospel content. He's more interested here to talk about the carrier of the message. His concern was to remind them of the kind of messengers who brought the gospel to them. Now, why would that be his focus here? Well, it's because there were some terrible accusations floating around Thessalonica. Paul was being slandered, and for the sake of the gospel, he needed to remind them of the kind of gospel messengers who came to them. So, let's read 1 Thessalonians 1.5 again. He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. So how did the gospel came? It did come in word, but not in word only. It came in power. It came in the Holy Spirit. It came with full conviction. And how do we know the gospel came this way? What does Paul point to by way of evidence? Well, let's finish reading verse 5. He says, Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, just as is a word of comparison. It's almost like an equal sign. Paul is saying that the evidence that the gospel came in power and with the spirit and with full conviction is the kind of messengers that he and his co-laborers were. Paul is focusing them beyond just the content of the gospel message. When he thinks back on his gospel ministry with them, he remembers these three things about it. First, he remembers that he came to them and there was power. In his interaction with them, the power of God was there among them. And second, he remembers that he was coming in the Holy Spirit. It was soaking in the Spirit of God, this ministry he had with them. And third, he remembers that when they came, they had fullness of confidence, that they had full conviction about what they were doing as gospel messengers. That's what he's describing. Paul's point here in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 is really to get after describing the gospel messenger. And so that's what we're going to focus on for the rest of our outline today. The quality of the messenger is so important. It's why discipline one, the heart, is something we must never move beyond. Because that's what will make us fruitful gospel servants, gospel ministers. Uncommon messengers who come in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction about the power and hope of the gospel for every circumstance. Don't we want to be that kind of women? I'll be honest, when I hear those three descriptive phrases, I realize that I can easily set my sights way too low in my ministry, in my relationships. Because I don't usually pray, God, please, as I seek to bring the gospel into my relationships, send your power and your Holy Spirit. And God, I need full conviction that the gospel is sufficient in everything. What if we did, though? What if we did think and pray that way? What if that were our focal point? As we bring the gospel into every minute of our lives, what if we're thinking, God, I want to rely on your power today, in this conversation, in this response, in my thought life right now. I need your spirit. So, how do we become that kind of woman? We already know, right? We shepherd our hearts to the word of God, to meet with him, and plead with him, to make us into this kind of gospel servant. But we need to understand what we're asking for, right? So, what does this power look like in Paul? Look over at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. And he says, We prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Here is Paul. This is a man with power and with the Holy Spirit. And with full conviction. And he says, I was like a nursing mother among you. I was protecting you with my gentleness. Verse 8, he says, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you'd become so very dear to us. Now, is that how we typically define power? Gentle, like a nursing mother? tender care, affection? If it's not, we need to change our definition. Because that describes Jesus. He was a powerful man, and he was the gentlest man. The meekest man on the earth. And this is the way we want God's power to be poured into our relationships. Now verse 5 ends by saying, Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So what kind of women do we want to prove to be? Will we be gentle messengers of the gospel? Think about what this is saying. Will we be like a nursing mother tenderly caring for her children? We need to be that kind of women who will um, do whatever it takes to pursue Christ so that in our lives, We become this kind of uncommon messenger for others. So let's shepherd our hearts to the word of God to get the gospel, to get Jesus, and plead with God for his power. Long for it. Ask for the Holy Spirit to produce his fruit in our lives. Plead for greater conviction about the gospel's power to transform lives through your ministry. That's how powerful the gospel is. Because ministry requires an uncommon messenger. But we have all that we need in Christ to be that messenger. So that brings us then to number three, where we see that ministry involves imitation. Read 1 Thessalonians 1 6 with me. It begins You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, I find that to be something of a scary thought. Listen to how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 11:1. He says, Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Paul's pattern of life was in alignment with Christ's pattern of life. He's saying, If you imitate me, you will imitate Christ. As believers, this is what we should strive for. You know the adage, More is caught than taught. We want to make sure that the gospel comes in words. But we also need to be pushing a step beyond that so that our prayer is, God, please make me into an imitatable woman. Make me an example that others can follow. People are watching us. What the gospel enables us to do as we align our life with Christ is to live a life worth imitating. Our desire And our prayer and our plan should be that we would so align our lives with Christ that others might imitate our life as we imitate Christ. God's design in gospel ministry is not that we give one another only the gospel, but that we would give each other an example to follow. Now what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, let's start by talking about what that does not mean one thing that we have to remember is it does not mean that we don't minister until we're perfect. First of all, that's not going to happen until we see Jesus face to face. It's not drumming up our own works-based righteousness. Why I'm just going to really get it together. Rather, a godly woman, an imitatable woman, is a woman living a life of repentance. When we blow it, When we sin, when we've got a bad attitude, when we're fearful, we go to those we live with, our roommates, our kids, our parents, our husband, whoever it is that we've sinned against, and we seek their forgiveness. How about the people that we work with? Talk about rocking their world. The world doesn't know what to do with repentance. Others will clearly see that there is something very, very different about you if you go and seek their forgiveness. Part of shepherding our hearts is preaching the gospel to our hearts, going to the cross with our sin, and shepherding it with the truth of the gospel, that Jesus paid for that sin, and he died for it, and that I'm no longer a slave to it. You're no longer a slave to it. We can be obedient So we must shepherd our hearts to God and plead with him to make us a reflection of Christ. Paul understood that. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul describes himself as the foremost of sinners. And yet he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He could only say that if he understood well the gospel's implications for his own heart. And so must we. See, when we do, it brings a humble joy as we rest in the completed work of the cross. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That kind of Galatians 2.20 living is worth imitating. Now let's look again at verse six and see specifically how they imitated Paul. Verse six six says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, we need to remember, because we often forget, that we live in enemy territory. We live in a very volatile place and time. There is a rebel prince who is fighting against our king. He is the prince of the power of the air. And there are rebels who are following that rebel prince. And the rebels that follow him are hostile against God. And oftentimes they will be hostile against you and me. Because of our loyalty to him. But in God's design, by God's plan, the gospel goes forward. And oftentimes many receive the gospel in the midst of tribulation and affliction. Paul experienced that, and he says specifically in verse 6, that you, the Thessalonians, became imitators of us, having received the word in much tribulation. But now look at what he says after that. See, he didn't end the verse that way. He says, having received the word in much tribulation, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now I don't naturally think about tribulation and affliction. Going together with joy. I tend to think that tribulation and affliction will dampen my joy. (laughs) But this verse tells us that with tribulation comes the joy of the Holy Spirit. Turn over to John 15. In verse 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. You want to have fullness of joy? Jesus says there is only one true joy. That's the, the only way that we're going to have joy is if it is His joy. Joy is rooted in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. Now turn over to John 16 verses 20 through 22. This is the same night. This is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. And He says, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one... Will take your joy away from you. No one will take your joy away from you. Why? Because it's his joy. Go ahead and look now at uh, John seventeen, verses thirteen and fourteen. Here Jesus is praying to the Father. And he says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He is telling them that they live in enemy territory, so they need his joy to be made full in them. And what Paul is telling us back in 1 Thessalonians is that God has a joy for us. There's a joy that's from Jesus. There's a joy that's from the Holy Spirit. And tribulation can't touch it. God's joy can be made full in us in the midst of tribulation. And in that sense, the Thessalonians imitated Paul. The word came to them, and there was trouble everywhere, and yet they were joyful. And we can have that kind of joy. We must plead with God to make us imitators of Christ so as to be this kind of example to others. So when trouble comes in our lives, there is joy, and others can imitate that. He's telling us that even in the midst of trouble, Jesus has given us a joyful life that's centered on joy. The word. I love that about God's word. It goes beyond our circumstances so that even when things are very hard, there is still joy. Now with all that said, I know that in my own life, joy has been a discipline I've needed to cultivate. Um, You may have heard me say this before, but you just can't say you've got joy if nobody else can tell. (laughs) I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, down in my heart to say if it's staying there, it might not be there. I have found it very helpful just to dig into the Word and look up the word joy and look up the word rejoice and find out what it is God's Word tells me to rejoice about and then just do it. Be obedient. Agree. What God put in his word is true. Yes, I will rejoice in my salvation. So if you need help cultivating joy, I want to encourage you to do that too. Just spend some time seeing what God's word has to say about joy. So we saw ministry has only one message. It's the gospel, that ministry requires an uncommon messenger, and that ministry involves imitation. So why don't we go ahead and take a five-minute break, and we'll come back and look at number four. Alright, welcome back. We've looked at the first three points in the outline, and now we're going to take a look at number four. Ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives. So now we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. And we're actually going to go back and read 6 again says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. The life that is imitatable is also an effective life. The Thessalonians became imitators for a reason, for a purpose. The so that at the beginning of verse 7 indicates that there's a purpose going on here. You became imitators so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. In verses 6 and 7 there's a chain reaction taking place in gospel ministry and that chain reaction is one person imitating another and then someone else imitating them. Christ is imitated by Paul and the men ministering with him. Then they become men that the Thessalonians imitate. And now they, the Thessalonians, are examples all over Macedonia and Achaia. That's the chain reaction. Christ to Paul, Paul to the Thessalonians, and the Thessalonians to anybody else in the region who hears about their faith. And this is how we need to be thinking, how we get to be thinking. This is where we can set our sights in gospel ministry. If we step into someone's life simply for the purpose of being an example for them to follow, we're not thinking big enough. When we step into a discipleship relationship, we want to go into that relationship thinking that as we are examples for them, we want to be preparing them to be examples to others, Paul then offers an explanation in verse 8 of this imitation chain reaction that he's been describing. It's an explanation of what we mean by effective lives. So verse 8 says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. That's how the Thessalonians were the example. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. Their faith has gone forth everywhere. When it says that the word sounded forth from you, the word sounded forth is like a trumpet blast. It was a distinct sounding forth to call an army to attention. And notice how far that biblical trumpet blast went. Not only to Macedonia and Achaia, but Paul says in every place your faith has gone forth. That is a solid very effective sounding forth. The key statement here about how effective all this is happens in verse 8. He says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Now who's saying that? The great preacher Paul can't say anything more? See God's word and their faith in Christ got blasted forth so clearly. It spoke so loudly for itself. Their lives were so thoroughly transformed as believers that by the by the time Paul tried to add anything, he was relaying old news. He had no need to say anything. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the Apostle Paul being reduced to silence? See, we've said that living a life of ministry means that the gospel is our message. It's the fabric of our thoughts. It's the joy of our hearts. It's the consolation of our souls. It's what we're always looking to share with others. And it means being an uncommon messenger with the gospel, displaying God's power and his spirit and full conviction through gentleness. And it means being an example to others, living lives of repentance, and having a joy that's founded in Christ that shines even in the midst of trials. And now we've seen that we need to desire that people actually imitate our example. We want this to be so effective that ministry is multiplied, that ministry continues through others. We need to pray that God would use those we minister to, whether it's in our homes or broader sphere of influence, to speak more broadly than we do. Now, what a call that is. That's big. But it's not a call to shrink from. Instead, let's look at it as something to aim for, to pray for, to hope for, by God's grace. This is what the gospel has the power to do. So pray for God to use you this way. That the gospel would be proclaimed and lived out with a life that is imitatable for the people around us so that they would become an example to others. Do you see that chain reaction? See, that's a big prayer. That is a prayer of faith. But it's what Paul is describing here. And that's the kind of ministry that we can aim for, that we need to aim for. Well, that brings us to number five, which is ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. We're going to look at verses 9 and 10. And in verse 9, he's explaining verse 8. Verse 8 ended with, we have no need to say anything. Now, why is that? Well, verse 9 says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The Macedonians and Achaeans were reporting two things. First, they're reporting about Paul and his ministry team and the reception that they had with the Thessalonians. Now, what kind of reception did Paul have? Well, the word reception here is the word for an entrance. Paul had a wide open entrance, a welcome path into their lives. That is the report that's going out, that Paul's ministry was well-received. Paul here is emphasizing again how important the gospel messenger is, his manner among them, the kind of man he proved to be among them, his behavior was never an obstacle to the gospel. Rather, we get the idea that when they saw him coming, they were thinking, say more, we want more time with you. They had never met anybody like him. Now, what was it that was so different about Paul? Well, remember, we talked about it in number two on the outline. Paul, as he brought the message, he brought it with power and with the Spirit and with conviction and displaying how the gospel had transformed him, that he was a man of gentleness, he was a man of joy. In tribulation, They had never seen anyone like that before. The life of the messenger is a huge component in gospel ministry. And that helps complement something else. And it's the second thing that the Macedonians were reporting. Remember, first they were reporting about Paul and his ministry team and the reception that they'd had with the Thessalonians. But the second thing that they're reporting is about how the Thessalonians turned to God from idols. To, that's not what he said. They turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. They turned to God from idols. Now what is that called when someone turns? Repentance. That's right. That's repentance. The report is about how they repented. The point of the report is not just how Paul was received, but that the Thessalonians repented. See, the whole goal of being received was so that they would repent and turn to the Lord. That's gospel ministry. That's what we mean when we say that ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. Now, most of the time, we focus on the first time, the first part of that, without too much trouble. We like to be well received. Right? We like to be liked and welcomed. We like that kind of reputation. But the Macedonians and the Achaeans couldn't only think of that, go- that aspect of gospel ministry. They also thought of repentance. Now, for those of us who are parents, we need to take these truths about ministry and make sure we don't miss applying them in our homes First. Sometimes we can get this mistaken, unbiblical idea that if we discipline, our kids won't like us. But that's not the picture of gospel ministry we see here. Our goal is to relate to our children so that we are easily received by them. And our correction and discipline is received by them with the hope that it will produce the fruit of repentance in their lives. And sometimes whether it's with our kids or with other people we're ministering with, sometimes we have to say hard things. But saying hard things does not have to be at odds with going to them in such a way that it's crystal clear that we love them, that we want to be right with them, that we want to help them, that we want to help them know and follow Christ. So with the Thessalonians, what did this turning to God from idols look like? What characterized their repentance? Well, verses 9 and 10 say that they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. So they served God and they waited for Jesus' return. Point number five is that ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. That means we labor transformation of life. We labor to see people become servants of the Lord who long for Jesus' return. If we are only likable in gospel ministry, but people don't actually change, that should burden our hearts. That should be very unsatisfying. We can't be satisfied with just being received, with just being welcomed into people's lives. We need to persevere for the hope of repentance for transformed lives in our friendships, in our parenting, in our small group, in our workplace, with our neighbors. We must always aim for repentance. And remember, this is all done gently. Like a nursing mother, we can't be harsh or abrasive. Go to 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, where we see Paul emphasize this again. There are five New Testament books that start with T that are all in a row, and they're in alphabetical order, if that helps you find them. First and 2 Thessalonians, First and 2 Timothy, and then Titus. Okay, about halfway through verse 25, we read, If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses. And that's what we want, right? An escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will? Of course that's what we want. We want to see people repent. Now, what does God want to precede that? What would God say he wants to display in the process of drawing someone to repentance? Now, what might we think? If you didn't have the verse in front of you, we might think, and rightly so, the gospel. We have got to have that right message. That is absolutely true. But Paul is emphasizing something else here. What does he lay out before that repentance? Look at verse 24 now, where he says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps... God might grant them repentance. Do you see that? See, God invests in his slaves qualities that reflect the very same character he has in bringing us to repentance. Romans 2.4 says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And it's our responsibility to and our privilege as those who are under grace to be that kind of messenger, not quarrelsome, but kind, patient, teaching, correcting with gentleness, to be that kind of a slave of Christ in gospel ministry where we ourselves are not an obstacle to repentance. We cannot be concerned merely about content. Yes, we need to be concerned about content, but we have to always look beyond that. We need to be this kind of messenger, the kind of messenger we've seen this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. That is who God loves to use in bringing people to repentance. That's what's being said here. That's the report that went out about Paul and his ministry partners. And if we're going to be that kind of women, we come back to discipline 1. We shepherd our hearts. We shepherd our hearts because we are concerned to step into the lives of our families and our roommates. We're concerned that our homes become places where the gospel is what shapes our care and our input into others' lives. See, when we step into people's lives, we want the right message, and we want to be concerned with the kind of person that we are, that we are loving them and representing Christ well in how we treat them. So that's what we're aiming for as we gather for Wellspring. And once Wellspring's over and we move on, we never graduate from this. We never move on from shepherding our hearts to Jesus Christ and the truth of the word. And we never stop ministering in God's way. This way that we've seen today with the gospel. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, truly you do lay me bare with it. And I'm so thankful, Lord. Lord, when I look at the high call, I know that there is no way that I can be this kind of gospel minister except for your work in my life. Thank you that you are willing, you are powerful, you are kind, and that you would condescend to want to use us in one another's lives. Oh, Father, please Help us not to hold back from serving and obeying you out of fear over our own inabilities. Lord, help us like Paul to be reliant upon your provision of power and your spirit and full conviction that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of you. Father, as we go to our discussion groups, how I pray that this would just be a very rich time as we gather together as women women who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, saved by your grace. Father, I pray that we would have a discussion that is helpful, that is heartfelt, that is um, transparent, where every woman feels comfortable sharing what it is you're doing in her life, how she's learning and growing, and that we would be able to encourage one another biblically in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I did really good on time. If you want to take a a little snack break or...